0: Get a beautiful bouquet of thirty bright multicolored spring tulips for just thirty dollars by going to one-eight com slash remember. We're also sponsored by Slack. Visit Slack.com slash remember, create a new team, and you'll get 100 dollars in credit for when you decide to upgrade to a paid plan. Ta-da, 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 ta-da. You must a Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, The Blacklist.
2: Are you a member of the Communist Party?
1: Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? A quarantine is necessary the to keep it from read and advocates the views expressed. I had my way about it. They'd all be sent back to Russia. Back to Russia.
0: This is also another installment in our unofficial series of episodes on Howard Hughes. Our previous stories about Hughes, though touching on issues like mental illness and chronic infidelity, have been relatively light-hearted. We've talked about his more or less successful love affairs with women like Katherine Hepburn, and his successes as a filmmaker with Hell's Angels and The Outlaw. Today, we're going to explore one of the more troubling aspects of Hughes' legacy, the very firm hand he had in enforcing the blacklisting of Hollywood workers, both as the head and owner of RKO Pictures and as a powerful rich guy whose influence went as high as Congress. Today's episode will also tell the story of Paul Jericho, the first and, as far as I can tell, only screenwriter, to be taken to court by a studio over the question of his firing during the blacklist period. After battling with Hughes in court over the breach of his contract and credit on the very minor Jane Russell film, The Las Vegas Story, Jericho teamed up with two other blacklisted filmmakers, Michael Wilson and Herbert Biberman, to make the truly subversive film that they had never been able to get away with in Hollywood. But even though they were working outside the studio system, Wilson... Biberman and Jericho found themselves blocked at every turn, in part thanks to the interference and intimidation of Howard Hughes. Join us, won't you, for the Blacklist story of Howard Hughes and Paul Jericho.
1: This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on Mubi is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from inland Oregon who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at movie.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride.
0: Mother's Day is coming up fast, and chances are, there's a lady in your life who deserves recognition. Whether it's the mom that supported you for all these years, the wife raising your children, or another mother whose day you just want to brighten. It's time to let them know how much you appreciate them. Send them the best, a beautiful bouquet from 1-800-Flowers.com, the official florist of Mother's Day. 1-800-flowers.com has an incredible Mother's Day offer for my listeners. Get a beautiful bouquet of 30 bright, multicolored spring tulips for just $30. That's $20 off the regular price. But this special offer is available for a limited time, so lock it in for Mother's Day now. 30 beautiful, vibrant tulips for just $30. You can't beat this exclusive deal from 1-800-FLOWERS, and if you do it now, you've gotten it out of the way, because Mother's Day is something you don't want to forget. To access this special offer and other fantastic deals just for my listeners, go to 1-800-FLOWERS.COM slash remember from your desktop or mobile device. That's 1-800-FLOWERS.COM slash remember. Some common narratives of the blacklist center on people who were persecuted for beliefs they either never had or had evolved away from, or else suggest that they were persecuted for writing subversive films, which was ludicrous because the collaborative nature of Hollywood made it impossible to sneak anything truly radical into a mainstream film. But Paul Jericho doesn't fit into any of those narratives. He was a committed communist from his youth in the 1930s through the 1950s, even beyond the point when many members of the party had turned their back on it in response to changing times, or to increasingly horrific revelations about Stalin, or just to save their own careers. And Jericho did believe it was possible to, quote-unquote, sneak progressive messages into Hollywood movies. And he tried to do it. Jericho eventually revised his ideology and admitted that he had been wrong about Stalin. But he remained committed to certain principles for his entire life. For one thing, he worked longer than almost anyone else to fight for recognition for blacklisted workers. Jericho was born Israel Shapiro in Los Angeles. His father and uncle, both of whom considered themselves socialists, had a law firm through which they represented the underrepresented. The future Jericho began attending socialist rallies when he was in high school. By college, he had decided that socialists, quote, weren't militant enough, and he joined the Communist Party. He wanted to learn the art and craft of filmmaking in Hollywood, and then go to Russia to contribute his skills to the Soviet cause. This never happened, but he did slowly start finding work as a screenwriter— And at the suggestion of an agent, he changed his name to sound less Jewish. By mid-1937, Jericho was willing to compromise further, writing to a friend that his ambitions were no longer to make art exactly. Shit, Jericho wrote, what I want is a job. The height of my aesthetic ambition is $800 a week at MGM. And someday, I'm going to get it. Instead, while remaining very active in party politics and regularly picketing against war, Jericho spent the next decade and a half slowly making a name for himself as a guy who was great at solving structural problems in scripts and becoming a go-to writer and fixer of romantic comedies. He believed that he had to reach a pinnacle of success before he could start sneaking his beliefs into the otherwise formulaic Hollywood movies that he was writing. He worked for nearly two years on the romantic farce, Tom, Dick, and Harry, and was open about his efforts to have the movie speak to and on behalf of the working man, as opposed to suggesting that the handsome rich guy was the girl's correct match. Jericho was nominated for an Oscar for his trouble. After this, Jericho finally ended up at MGM, where he contributed to the script for the Robert Taylor film, Song of Russia. This was just about the peak of his Hollywood career. Jericho was finding ways to communicate his political ideas about the world, while also making a good living. It was almost too good to be true. In 1947, Jericho signed a long-term deal with RKO. He was not subpoenaed with the rest of the unfriendly 19 that year, a free pass that almost offended him. How hard do you have to work at being a communist? He joked. With his own job apparently safe, Jericho staunchly and publicly supported the Hollywood 10, producing a short documentary about their plight and helping to raise funds for their legal fees. Jericho's contract with RKO was allowed to lapse, but when they needed him to rewrite a script he had already written, in 1951, Jericho was offered a new contract at the studio at a whopping $2,000 a week. By this time, RKO had been taken over by Howard Hughes, and Hughes had begun instituting increasingly paranoid policies to make sure there were no communists working at his studio. In 1952, Hughes finally made a declaration that he was shutting down production to clean house of communist sympathizers. But in fact, he had been making efforts in that direction for years— As early as the fall of 1948, Hughes started baiting RKO directors with a script called I Married a Communist. Hughes used I Married a Communist as a litmus test. Anyone who didn't want to work on the movie, which was anti-communist but also a terrible script, was definitely Hughes's political enemy. Joseph Losey refused to direct it, and in turn, Hughes wouldn't let Losey direct anything else. Losey eventually paid RKO to escape his contract. Nicholas Ray at first agreed to make the movie, much to the surprise of his left-wing friends, but he somehow managed to get out of it with Hughes' blessing. In January 1949, RKO issued a statement saying that Ray had departed the project, quote, for dramatic rather than ideological reasons. And after that, Hughes extended Ray's contract. Also, under Hughes' auspices, RKO subscribed to a firm called the American Library of Information, which seems to have been a kind of clearinghouse to which you could send names and receive in return a report listing all mentions of the writer or actor in relation to communism or various front groups that had appeared in both mainstream and left-wing publications making it basically a pay-for-play version of the FBI if all the FBI did was do the 1951 equivalent of Search LexisNexis and then call what came up incriminating evidence. RKO paid for reports on all of its employees, as well as personnel who had worked on the lot dating back to the 1930s. Reports were ordered for a number of bold-faced names, which we haven't heard yet in this series, including Miriam Hopkins, Marlon Brando, and Gregory Peck. Throughout all of this, Hughes never showed up on the ArKO lot. He conducted all of his business over the phone and gave his wishes only to go-betweens who carried out his orders. His power was crushing, but invisible. RKO employees had the feeling that they were being watched, which they were because Hughes had spies everywhere. But the studio was also clearly lacking in creative direction. At one point, Hughes ordered that production be shut down almost completely while he solved the problem of communist infestation. All of this, up to and including invoking the idea of a house tented for fumigation of termites— made the RKO of the Hughes era something of a microcosm of J. Edgar Hoover's America. But this was not a normal way for a movie studio to run. The media coverage of Hughes from this time is fascinating because it's so fascinated. No one knows what to make of him, and even those who offer criticisms seem to be afraid of him. In a March 1951 column, Hollywood commentator Jimmy Fiddler seemed more amused than anything by Hughes, who he called the absolute czar of RKO, while noting, and perhaps reporting this for the first time to the general public, that Hughes wouldn't set foot on the lot, take face to face meetings with executives, or even allow them to call him directly. And yet, according to Fiddler, Hughes insisted on watching each day's rushes for every production, supervising all scripts and budgets, and approving casting choices. Fiddler added, quote, "...he also demands that a complete list of all the reviewers who attend a showing of any RKO picture must be sent to him, though no one, to date, has been able to figure out why he wants the names." This is something that would be seen as standard practice today. Although in the context of the times, a list of names has ominous implications. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else. And they ask me how I feel about it. And then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel And a lot of the time, my answer is, nope. Because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, Flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, Given all of this, it's somewhat surprising that Paul Jericho, who for 15 years had been an active communist activist and who had already been named as a communist by Edward Dimitrik in a closed-door interrogation with the FBI, was even offered a new contract at RKO in 1951. Given Hughes's network of spies... It should have been well known inside RKO what Jericho's politics were, and if Hughes was really paying as close attention as Fiddler says he was, he never would have allowed it. Coincidence or not, it was around the time of Fiddler's column, at least according to later testimony by Hughes, that his staff was given by him violent orders that Jericho be fired. On March 23rd, Jericho was finally subpoenaed by HUAC, and Hughes, according to Hughes, had to fire Jericho a second time because no one obeyed his violent orders the first time around. Hughes claimed that at this time, he ordered that all material Jericho had ridden be destroyed. Jericho said he showed up at the gate and was turned away. He had left a bottle of whiskey in his office, which he was unable to claim. On April 13, 1951, Jericho appeared before HUAC and pled the Fifth Amendment, invoking his right to avoid incriminating himself. After this, his agents informed him that they would be unable to find work for him in Hollywood. In February 1952, Hughes spared no expense on a junket to promote a new RKO movie called The Las Vegas Story. One of Hughes's planes flew journalists from Los Angeles to Vegas for a screening of the film and a night of partying. There was thus an enormous amount of press about the Las Vegas story, and Jericho couldn't miss the fact that none of it mentioned that he had written the screenplay for the film. Hughes had taken Jericho's name off of the film and given sole credit to Earl Felton, who had done a rewrite after Jericho was fired. The Screenwriters Guild had the right to arbitrate screen credits, and Jericho immediately filed a claim with them. His assessment of the discrepancy between his script and the finished film was that while the dialogue had almost completely been rewritten, the structure of the story remained the same as he had written it. The Guild determined that Jericho should share screenplay credit with the writers RKO had hired to rewrite him in his absence. Hughes disagreed. He maintained that the Guild's contract was with the writer, not the studio, and that Jericho had violated his contract with the studio by violating the morals clause in his contract by refusing to declare that he was not a communist. In March 1952, RKO filed a declaratory relief bill with the court on the matter. This was an unusual move. It basically meant that, in anticipation of Jericho filing a suit against them, RKO was preempting it and protecting themselves by asking the court to hear their side of the story and rule that they were in their rights to fire Jericho and deny him credit, no matter what the guild ruled. Jericho responded by filing claims for $100,000 in lost income and $250,000 in punitive damages the Screenwriters Guild also filed suit against Hughes. Hughes, in turn, sent the trades an open letter to the Guild, daring them to strike. That conflict ended in a judgment for Hughes, at which point the Guild gave up their right to arbitrate credits. This led to the rise of fake names and fronts, which led to stand-ins and imaginary people winning Oscars, but we'll get to that in a later episode. In the run-up to his day in court, Jericho was quoted alleging that Hughes, who had claimed that he had suspended production at RKO in order to hunt communists, was actually trying to distract from the fact that his studio was running at a loss and Hughes was hopeless as to how to turn it around. Certainly at this point, it seems to have been an open secret in Hollywood that RKO was having trouble producing enough content to be profitable. And for every column that hinted as much, there'd be an obviously planted item in another paper enthusing about the impressive slate of RKO attractions on the horizon, which would indicate that Hughes was aware of the public relations problem and was already working to combat it. So Jericho's allegation was probably, at least in part, true. But it seemed like a desperate move in a climate in which Hughes' actions we were on the verge of turning him into a national hero. On the Senate floor, Richard Nixon declared that Hughes had earned, quote, the approval of every man and woman who believes that forces of subversion must be wiped out. By the way, one of the key contributors to Nixon's 1950 campaign against Helen Douglas had been none other than Howard Hughes. A month after the suit was filed against Jericho, Hughes, who was by now rarely making public appearances, addressed the American Legion on the topic of what the Legionnaire who introduced him referred to as the terrific battle in which Hughes was engaged in Hollywood.
2: There is no way to tell accurately how many people in Hollywood have communist beliefs, because for every individual who has been at one time or another identified with one of the front organizations, there are many others who have not been so identified, and yet whose beliefs and principles are even stronger than the ones we know about. Despite all the movement to whitewash the industry, there is a substantial number of people in the motion picture industry who follow the Communist Party line. And if there were not a substantial number, if there were only one, that would be too many. I say only the most naive person today is stupid enough to believe that the Communist Party is a political party. When they put a man on the witness stand before the congressional committee and ask him if he ever was or is a member of the Communist Party, and he says he won't answer because to answer might tend to incriminate him, I want to ask you something. Do you think if they asked this man if he were a Democrat or a Republican, he would refuse to answer on the grounds that his answer might incriminate him? The very fact that this man pleads that constitutional ground, that is an admission that they are not talking about politics, they are talking about crime.
0: Here, the assembled legionnaires burst into applause. But Hughes wasn't finished yet. Here was his kicker. Every
2: man is entitled to his political belief. But if you believe that the Communist Party is in the same category as the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, then I think I can answer you in this way. We are not fighting Democrats or Republicans in Korea.
0: In the fall of 1952, HUAC took their show on the road, holding hearings at the Federal Building in Los Angeles in which congressmen questioned yet more Hollywood types. As many as 200 blacklisted Hollywood workers picketed on the streets outside the building. The LA Times and Daily News ran photos of the picketers, and Paul Jericho was amongst the photographed. On November 20th, 1952, Hughes appeared in court to testify against Jericho. He was vague on the question of why he gave an order to fire Jericho before the writer was subpoenaed, but he indicated that he perhaps got inside word that the subpoena was coming. Once Jericho was well and truly thrown off the lot, however, Hughes believed that no trace of him was left behind.
2: I am sure that none of my subordinates would have dared to use Jericho's stuff after I ordered it out.
0: The key question in the trial was not really whether or not Jericho had contributed to the script for the Las Vegas story. It was whether or not Hughes and RKO breached Jericho's contract by firing him. The Hughes camp said no. Jericho breached his contract by violating the morals clause. This seems a little cray if they really tried to fire him before he was even subpoenaed months before he was given a chance to testify before HUAC, where he could have cleared his name. But the history of morals clauses in Hollywood is a funny one, rife with double and inconsistently applied standards. For the first 25 years or so that morals clauses existed in Hollywood, they were mostly used to scare performers into falling in line. Before the blacklist era, they had never actually been used to fire anyone. and you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks, Head to NetSuite.com slash remember. NetSuite.com slash remember. NetSuite.com slash remember. Hughes's own application of the Morals Clause was nothing if not inconsistent. In the fall of 1948, shortly after Hughes took over RKO, one of the studio's biggest stars, Robert Mitchum, was arrested for possession of marijuana. Mitchum spent a month in state prison, where Hughes visited him, and upon release, Mitchum continued to be one of RKO's most cherished and profitable stars. Late in life, Mitchum apparently told people that the whole arrest and prison stint had been a publicity stunt ginned up by Hughes's RKO, which is both baffling and not totally out of the realm of possibility. Of course, much of what Hughes himself got up to in his personal life would seem to violate any kind of morals clause that a boss could try to hold him to, if he had ever had a boss in his life. Jericho was hoping that his lawyers would use Hughes' womanizing against him, and he even put together a dossier to help them do it. Since the issue was his right to take my name off of a film under a morality clause, Jericho said, I did think his morality was pertinent. After all, his name was on the film too, and remained on. In rebuttal of the theory that Jericho's morals were a liability to the Las Vegas story, after establishing that RKO had marketed the film as, quote, presented by Howard Hughes, Jericho's lawyer, asked the millionaire what kind of impact might it have had on the film to be presented by a man who was famously described in Time magazine as likely to, quote, never die in an airplane, but at the hands of a woman with a 38?" Hughes's lawyer loudly objected to the question. Hughes just laughed. The Jericho side also tried to submit as evidence of Hughes's moral character a 1946 photoplay article describing a publicity stunt Hughes paid for to promote The Outlaw, a film which was as much about actress Jane Russell's ample breasts as it was about Billy the Kid. Hughes had paid Skywriters to write the name of the film over Pasadena. Under the words, The Outlaw... The planes drew what the magazine described as two large circles with a dot in each, clearly meant as crude representations of the real draw of the movie. Jericho's lawyer then went back to the allegation that Hughes was using the fight against communism as a shell game to avoid responsibility for his failure to sustain RKO as a profitable enterprise. Hughes and his attorneys repeatedly denied that RKO had been shut down, but conceded that the studio had been and was in a phase of, quote, limited production. After Hughes completed his testimony, his lawyers brought in an advertising executive and a political science professor to testify that in the minds of the public, a plea of the Fifth Amendment was equivalent to guilt particularly in the instance of accused communists, using the amendment to avoid answering questions to Congress. Jericho took the stand on November 24th. His attorney's strategy seemed to be to prove that only Hughes and RKO had viewed Jericho's actions before Congress and his wider pattern of support for his peers who had been similarly persecuted to be a bad thing. Under cross-examination, Hughes's lawyer asked, Didn't people deride you and shout at you while you were picketing the HUAC hearings that fall? Jericho responded, Yes, there was a small group which was hired for that purpose, but they shouted at the pickets as a group, not at me personally. The judge ordered that the phrase, hired for that purpose, be stricken from the record. When the Hughes side rested their case, Jericho's attorney called Richard Davis— one of Hughes's personal publicists, to the stand. Davis acknowledged that he had sent out press releases about Hughes's battles with Jericho, which Jericho's side said was evidence that Hughes started the battles as a publicity stunt, as a smokescreen to distract attention from the real troubles at RKO. Hughes's side protested that Jericho created the publicity himself by refusing to tell Congress whether or not he was a communist. Incredibly, None of the news reports about this case indicate that anyone noted the strangeness of this argument, given that Hughes claimed he had fired Jericho before he was even subpoenaed. If what Jericho did to violate his morals clause was plead the fifth before HUAC, then to me, it seems clear that RKO breached its contract with Jericho before Jericho violated his morals clause. But it did not seem that way to the court. November 26, 1952, a Los Angeles judge declared that Hughes and RKO were within their rights to deny credit to Jericho on the Las Vegas story because Jericho's conduct before HUAC brought the writer into, quote, public disgrace, thus violating the morals clause in his contract. Jericho probably never had a chance. The case was heard by the judge without a jury, And before testimony was completed, the judge struck Jericho's request for punitive damages, allowing him to counterclaim just $100,000 in lost wages. It was the first court judgment against a movie employee fired for refusing to answer HUAC's questions, and Hughes issued a comment suggesting that he hoped it wouldn't be the last. I hope this court
2: decision will encourage the rest of the motion picture industry, and indeed all industry, to weed out these men and women from their ranks.
0: Email can be so distracting, and yet it's more efficient than the average meeting, which takes up time that I could be using being productive. So my eyes popped out of my head when I read that Slack surveyed their customers and found that 32% of users reported a productivity increase, over 48% reported a reduction in internal email, and over 25% said Slack made for fewer meetings. Slack is a messaging app for teams. It brings all of your communication at work into one place, integrating with the tools and services you use every day. Slack wants to make your life simpler, more pleasant, and more productive. Cobbling together a million different communication tools like email, IM, and Skype is not efficient and will leave you and your team frustrated. Slack pulls all these disjointed conversations into a single, organized, and searchable view. There's no better way to make faster decisions and increase transparency across teams. You don't just get messaging with Slack, they also make sharing files easy. If you use any services like Google Drive, Dropbox, or Trello, just paste the link, and the document is immediately uploaded and searchable. If all of this sounds like a productivity dream come true, then visit slack.com slash remember create a new team, and you'll get $100 in credit for when you decide to upgrade to a paid plan. That's slack.com slash remember. With his Hollywood prospects nil, Jericho teamed up with two other blacklisted filmmakers, Michael Wilson and Herbert Biberman. Wilson had won an Oscar in 1952 for writing A Place in the Sun, even though he had been blacklisted for refusing to name names to HUAC in the fall of 1951. Biberman had been one of the Hollywood Ten. A few months after he was released from prison, his wife, Oscar-winning actress Gail Sondergaard, was subpoenaed by HUAC. Biberman felt that he and his wife had been persecuted for being subversive threats to an industry, when actually... In their minds, they had been playing by the rules all along. Now blacklisted, they started thinking about making an actually subversive film, a film which used their skills as craftspeople of Hollywood entertainments to dramatize issues that had drawn them to the party. The rights of workers, the personhood of non-whites, and equality between men and women. In early 1952, a strike was settled between the local 890 chapter of the mine mill and smelter workers and the Empire Zinc Company in Silver City, New Mexico. In a town where mining was the only business, the union workers had little power and few options. There was no way to make a living in the area without working at a mine or running a business that relied on the income of mine workers. So, striking was the only method they had to improve their meager prospects. When the company got an injunction on the picketing men, their wives picketed for them and went to jail, in many cases, bringing their children with them to the jailhouse because there were no childcare options. The company and the community opposed the union because of the belief that it was communist affiliated, and in fact, it had been expelled from the CIO in 1950 on that same charge. But because of the fact that 97% of the chapter's membership was Mexican-American, as writer Elizabeth Kirby put it in Frontier magazine, quote, The division in the community took on a tinge of ethnic hostility. In late December 1952, Clinton Jenks, the union organizer of Local 890, announced that the members of the union were planning to participate in a semi-documentary film inspired by their lives. The film would be written by Michael Wilson and directed by Herbert Biberman, and it would be produced by Paul Jericho, who, thanks to his legal battles with Howard Hughes, was that year's Hollywood pinko public enemy number one, as far as the press was concerned. The three filmmakers considered themselves an equal partnership. No major decision was made unless all three agreed. And in order to make Salt of the Earth, they would collaborate with Simon Lazarus, a movie theater operator from the Los Angeles suburb of Monrovia. With Jericho taking the lead, the group amassed $100,000 from private investors. It wasn't a lot, but it was enough to move forward. Many contemporaneous reports about Salt of the Earth claimed that the union financed the film, which might have lent some credibility to claims that it was pure propaganda. But that wasn't true. What the union provided was not money, but their story, which Wilson spent months researching through consulting with the real players. And many members of the union, in turn, played parts in the movie. The primary goal in casting was authenticity, Sondergaard had planned to play the lead role in the film of a Mexican-American wife of a minor who finds herself when she and her fellow wives join the union fight. But once the filmmakers started working with the real people of Silver City, it became apparent that casting a white, Oscar-winning Hollywood actress in the role of a Hispanic woman whose life circumstances were in large part dictated by the color of her skin— would be to replicate the whitewashing of the system that they were trying to escape. And so, the group decided to offer the lead role in the film to Rosara Revueltas, a Mexican actress who had recently won that country's version of the Academy Award for Best Actress. Jenks, a blonde and blue-eyed decorated war veteran, would essentially play himself in the film, the white organizer of a predominantly Mexican-American union in a community in which the white men in power— generally treat the non-white workers as a breed less than human. Other members of the community would also play characters familiar to their own situations. Shooting began in late January 1953, on the ranch of a local who was happy to host the film crew. And everything pretty much went smoothly until the end of February. The locals who were not involved in the production initially seemed unaware that there was anything about these filmmakers that was unusual. Then the negative press started. The Screen Actors Guild had issued a statement saying that it was a production unsanctioned by them, and a syndicated columnist spread an old rumor that union organizer Jenks was a communist agitator who was trying to shut down the local copper industry, allegations Jenks had repeatedly denied, pointing to the anti-communist loyalty oath that he had signed in accordance with the Taft-Hartley Act. Then, on February 23rd, immigration officials showed up in Silver City and seized Revueltas' passport and visa. The next day, Congressman Donald Jackson from Los Angeles attacked Salt of the Earth on the floor of Congress. Jackson claimed that Salt of the Earth was a production of the Communist Party and stirred up fear that the movie would be employed as, quote, a new weapon for Russia. Jackson declared, I shall do everything in my power to prevent the showing of this communist made film in the theaters of America. From the New Mexico set of the film, Jericho issued a statement inviting Jackson to, quote, take off his cloak of congressional immunity and fight like a man. Going on to deny a number of Jackson's claims about the movie, Jericho summed up, Representative Jackson is an unmitigated liar. A few days later, Rosara Revueltas was arrested and taken to El Paso, where she was booked on the crime of entering the country illegally. Though she had valid papers when she entered, and the border agent had waived her past, as border agents at El Paso were likely to do, She was now told her papers were invalid because they hadn't been stamped at the border. She decided to go back to Mexico voluntarily before she could be forced, which meant that Biberman had to use a double, whom he shot from behind, in order to shoot the film. The same day that Revueltas was arrested, the local paper in Silver City published an editorial encouraging the citizens of the town to, quote, oust In their midst. About a week later, the film crew embarked on a location shoot on a residential street. They had been given permission to shoot on the street by the mayor's office, but local residents, inflamed by the local newspaper, wanted the crew to leave. They told the filmmakers, the mayor doesn't run this town, and threatened to smash the camera if they didn't pack up. That day, The local radio station played Donald Jackson's congressional speech about the film twice. The next morning, Clinton Jenks woke up to find bullet holes in his car. On March 3rd, fistfights broke out on the streets of Silver City. A local pharmacist named Earl Lett kicked the film camera and reportedly threatened, All of you communists better get out of here, or you'll go out in black boxes. Clinton Jenks came out of his office to see what was going on, and Lett said, There comes my meat, and punched him in the face. In his defense, Lett said, i got two kids growing up here, and I don't want any communist influences around. The protests against the film crew continued, and the film crew continued to pledge that they weren't going anywhere. At one point, Director Biberman and the local chief of police had a clandestine meeting, at which Biberman promised the film crew would move out of town after they completed shooting the following weekend, and the police chief, in turn, promised to protect them for that long. But once the film crew left, there was no protection for the people who had collaborated with them who were left behind. Between March 7th and March 15th, fires ripped through the local union headquarters, as well as the home of Floyd Bostick, one of just two white members of the union. Bostick's wife said that she found oil-soaked rags under her porch and the next day returned home to find a burning torch on her roof. The Silver City District Attorney ruled that the fires weren't arson, and rumors spread throughout the town that the Bosticks had tried to burn down their own house to further inflame, no pun intended, the local tensions. A few days after the torch was found, another fire broke out at Bostick's house, and this one burned it to the ground. Meanwhile, Congressman Donald Jackson continued his campaign against the film. On the floor of Congress on March 19, Jackson was allowed to read aloud a number of letters he had received in support of his campaign against Salt of the Earth. One of these letters was from Howard Hughes, who offered a step-by-step plan to sabotage the completion of the movie.
2: If the motion picture industry, not only in Hollywood, but throughout the United States, will refuse to apply these skills, will refuse to furnish this equipment, the picture cannot be completed in
0: this country. Hughes noted that the film lab Pathé had accepted a down payment from Jericho & Co. to process their film dailies but that after headlines started appearing branding the film as a communist plot, Pathé returned the money and refused to process the film. Hughes then added this ominous bit of information.
2: Investigation fails to disclose where the laboratory work is being done now, but it is being done somewhere, by someone, and a great deal more laboratory work will have to be done by someone before the motion picture can be completed.
0: By investigation... Hughes was, of course, referring to his own network of private detectives and paid spies. With that one word, he put the Salt of the Earth crew on notice that he had them under surveillance. Hughes went on to recommend that the following institutions and workers be, quote, alert to the situation and refuse to work on Salt of the Earth. Film laboratories, suppliers of films,
2: musicians and recording technicians necessary to record music, technicians who make dissolves, fades, etc., owners and operators of sound recording equipment and dubbing rooms, positive and negative editors and cutters, and laboratories that make release prints.
0: it would be wrong to give Howard Hughes credit for all of the problems Salt of the Earth faced. As Hughes himself pointed out, Pathé's boycott of the film predated his declaration, and the filmmakers had also had trouble securing a crew because IATSE refused to work with them from the outset. And also, you know, their lead actress was threatened into self-deportation, before Hughes went public with his recommendation/ slash threat. But in his memoir about Salt of the Earth, Biberman would give Hughes plenty of credit for turning many arms of the industry against them. He details problems securing the work of many of the types of craftspeople Hughes called on to refuse to work on Salt of the Earth, including editors, special effects technicians, and sound workers and facilities. Biberman offers exhaustive testimony, detailing the team's frustrated attempts to distribute the movie. But the Cliff Notes version is that no distributor would release it nationally, so the filmmakers had to book engagements themselves, and then they were stymied by local Yahtzee projectionists who refused to handle the film. Through one independent theater owner, they managed to play on two screens in New York City, where the film did well. But engagements in Detroit, Chicago, and other cities fell apart before they could get started. They had to rent a house to show the movie for a week in Los Angeles, but the local papers refused to accept advertising. By the end of what passed for Salt of the Earth's domestic run, the filmmakers were in debt by over $200,000. They mounted an antitrust action against the major distributors and exhibitors in 1956. It took eight years for the case to resolve in a judgment against the filmmakers. But by then, it was the mid 1960s, and Salt of the Earth soon began popping up on college campuses and in film clubs. It became a cult classic, and then a certified classic when it was entered into the National Film Registry in 1992. And for good reason. When you watch the film today, it's evident that the production was troubled some of the sound recording and mixing is sloppy, the performances are inconsistent, and even if you didn't know that Rosara Revueltas had been forced to leave the set before its end, you might get the feeling that the actress was strangely isolated. But overall, Selt of the Earth is kind of incredible. It's gripping, and sometimes funny, and genuinely moving. And sadly... The level of rhetoric about Mexicans, spoken in this 60-year-old film by white people, is extremely similar to the level of rhetoric on this issue coming from one end of the political spectrum today. Jericho kept appealing the RKO verdict, and kept losing. By the mid-1950s, Jericho was a high-ranking member within the Hollywood branch of the Communist Party, He was committed to the idea that the party should adopt new approaches, to admit that they had been wrong in some of their dogmatic thinking, but to also find ways to adapt their core ideals of equality to everyday American life. In the end, in his words, he presided over the Hollywood party's liquidation. After the Khrushchev report of 1956, there was no denying, as Jericho put it, that we had been defending indefensible things. He then tried to create an American Communist Party that was distinct from the Soviets, but by 1958, he had to admit defeat. Jericho moved to France, where he wrote for B-movies and European TV under a pseudonym. After 20 years, he returned to California and taught film history and theory at the University of California at Santa Barbara. He worked extremely hard to make sure that the story of the blacklist was told, and that writers who had been denied credits had their names reinstated on the movies that they wrote. One such case was Lawrence of Arabia, which had been written by Michael Wilson, the screenwriter of Salt of the Earth. Jericho petitioned the Writers Guild for years to officially recognize Wilson as the author of David Lean's epic, which they finally did in 1994. In 1996, the Guild formed a committee to review lists compiled, in part by Jericho, of blacklisted writers and the films they wrote under pseudonyms. That committee was able to restore credits on 27 films in their first go-round. The number had risen to 91 by the year 2000. But Paul Jericho wasn't around to see that. On October 27, 1997, Jericho was a featured speaker at an event called Hollywood Remembers the Blacklist, where the current presidents of all four major Hollywood guilds made statements of apology for their failure to protect the rights of their workers to work. The guilds have come a long way since they failed to protect the Hollywood Ten and the Hollywood Hundreds, Jericho said that night. What you and your fellow presidents have reaffirmed tonight is the guiding principles of unionism, that an injury to one is an injury to all. The next day, Jericho fell asleep behind the wheel of his car. It crashed, and he died. A decade or so before he died, when asked about Hughes by an interviewer, Jericho said, I was proud to have him as an enemy. By the time Jericho had exhausted his appeals, Hughes had sold his stake in RKO. And after that, Hughes pretty much stopped giving interviews entirely. But that is a story for another day. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Special thanks to our special guest, Noah Segan, returned as Howard Hughes. In our archives, you can find several more episodes about Howard Hughes, all featuring the voice talents of Mr. Segan. Our production and research assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz, and our editor is Henry Malofsky. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Remember This Pod. And if you want to help people find the show, a great way to do that is by subscribing to us on iTunes and rating and reviewing us there. We're also available on other podcatchers of your choice. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night
2: to the hardworking of the people, drink, drink to the lonely
1: of birth, raise your glass to the good and the evil, drink, drink to the
2: salt of the earth, pray a prayer for the
1: common.